0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. But later in the show, we're going to talk with U.S. Senator Gary Peters about the budget deal that is taking shape in Washington to avoid another government shutdown. We'll talk about what's not in that deal, the future of DACA recipients right now, uh, we will also, a little later in the show, talk about immigration and the debate over immigration, where it's headed uh, with two local journalists who uh, publish in uh, immigrant communities, uh, very close to the questions that are coming up there and the tensions that exist. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. It'll get, get started about half past the hour. But first, we have been talking this week about the shifting politics that surround the FBI. Between investigations into Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, turnover in leadership and classified political memos, the FBI appears to have few friends right now in Washington. Republican lawmakers have traditionally been defenders and advocates for the federal law enforcement agency, but the GOP has turned on the FBI in recent months as the investigation into President Donald Trump heats up. But The politicizing of the FBI is nothing new, and its reputation has been tarnished with some Americans for decades, namely African Americans. The FBI has a legacy of attacking Martin Luther King Jr.'s character during the civil rights movement, running a counterintelligence program to disseminate lies about civil rights leaders and advocates, and has generally treated black activists like thugs and dangerous criminals rather than Americans fighting for equal treatment and justice under the law. That's where we want to start the conversation today, talking about the history of tensions between FBI and the African-American community. Uh, Also talking about what that looks like in the present context. As always, the number to join the conversation here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to help frame out this history of tension between F- the FBI and African American in uh, this country is Jacoby Williams. He is an associate professor of history with a focus on African American and African diaspora is- studies at uh, Indiana University. He gave a lecture this week at the University of Michigan about the transnational impact. Of the Black Panther Party, Jacoby Williams, welcome to Detroit today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, so let's start with uh, how far back uh, this bad relationship between the FBI and African Americans goes. Uh, my my memory is it, it it sort of starts at the beginning, right? That the, at the that, very beginning. Yes. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, uh, one of the things that motivated him was fear. I suppose of of uh, African Americans of the idea of of civil rights and that uh, much of the work of the bureau in the beginning was framed around that
1: fear. Correct. So, uh, J. G. Hoover specifically and the FBI, in particular, uh, first major uh, campaign was against Marcus Garvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks forget that that campaign uh, to discredit. And especially to sabotage most of the, the United the Universal Negro Improvement Association's uh, campaign in the 20s um, really much pretty much spearheaded and springboarded the FBI into what we now know it to be today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one can argue the legs of uh, that kind of um, surveillance and spying and uh, on, on citizens. I want to emphasize this <laughs> as these are citizens right. uh, domestically. Uh, pretty much got its beginning by targeting the African American community, one of the most powerful uh, political movements in the 20th century, and it would continue that, that that trend throughout um, the rest of that that century.
0: Yeah, uh, let's go back even before the founding of the FBI, though, and sort of root this in in the history of fear of American African American resistance movements generally. This goes back to. Uh, to uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, post Civil War Reconstruction era uh, pushback, but but probably even even back beyond
1: that. No, well, if if you look at most of abolitionism, but the the laws were different in that period. Right, so much of the Constitution is. Uh, in the very beginning, uh, until those amendments uh, taking place post Civil War, War amendments, are, are right? Mostly, um, it's mostly a slave document, an institution that protects slavery. And so, um, one can argue that law enforcement are um, hostile in a certain way. But the Constitution and the law, the rule of law, especially with these clauses, you get the uh, the the, the, uh, the compromises and so mm-hmm. forth that take place. Um, prior to the Civil War that pretty much forces people, even citizens in some regard, um, to treat uh, folks as fugitives. And What makes that dangerous is any person of African-American descent or African descent could be c- accused of being a runaway at that point, uh, which really complicates things, which really us, spearheads us into those kinds of conflicts that lead to uh, the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and
0: And as we were talking about the FBI, sort of grows up around this idea of uh, uh, suppressing uh, civil rights, suppressing uh, resistance movements. Uh, are, are some of the movements that we see later in the 20th century uh, a direct answer to the oppression that we see from the FBI? In other words, uh, things like the Black Panther Party, do they grow up in part as a way to say this is not OK, that, uh, that what you're doing is wrong?
1: Yeah, so most of um, those resistance movements, uh, not targeted directly at the FBI, but they're mostly local uh, phenomena, grassroots organizations, um, and their target uh, are the local police departments. Mm-hmm. And so folks um, generally in, in mainstream will argue that African-Americans have a problem um, with, with certain elements of institutions. Um, and so folks throw out these loose terms like, race riots and like, well no, that's no, I'm sorry, race riots. You know, <laughs> no, prior to nineteen nineteen and in some cases in the nineteen twenties you get race riots, meaning white mobs going on, target targeting African American communities, killing right. folks, burning them down. Lynching. We we had one uh, here. Uh, exactly. In, in Detroit. Uh, and especially in the red summer of nineteen nineteen. So um African Americans responding after that are not really race riots. They, you never can find an episode of a black community Targeting a white community (laughs) because of their race and attacking them. No, it's always been tension between law enforcement and a lack of enforcement of the law. Or African-Americans of being over criminalized. Yeah. And so you see an uprising of these kinds of responses. It's always the black community against the police, uh, not against white people, but against the way in which they are being policed. Um, and the, the, the combination of, of those communities by law enforcement and criminality of, and then forcing people to recognize them as citizens. Like, so the, the Panthers are one of those groups who's, who spawn out of um, those kinds of campaigns um, in the 1960s, founded in 1966, and one thing they're arguing is, well, if the police are the ones who are, are terrorizing and brutalizing us, then who do we call on the police? How do we how do we protect ourselves? Exactly. Right. And so they arm themselves. They they get law books. They're two law students, Huey Newton, and Bobby Seale, who founded this organization. And most folks forget that these are not um, criminals and thugs. These are very highly educated law students who knew the the from the federal level down to the local municipal code what was legal and what they can actually do in f- to force the police to actually do their job of serving and protecting the African American community yeah.
0: Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guest is Jacoby Williams. He's an associate professor of history with a focus on African-American and African diaspora studies at Indiana University. He was in town this week giving a lecture at the University of Michigan about the transnational impact of the Black Panther Party. We are talking about the history of history. Uh, of the relationship between the FBI and the African-American community, specifically African-American resistance movements. We were talking this week, earlier this week, about the politicization of the FBI and how that looks today in the era of Donald Trump uh, and how that may be different from the historical politicization of law enforcement agencies. Today we are talking specifically about how that affects African-Americans. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's go to Jamal. Jamal in Detroit. Uh, Welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Good, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, go ahead, and, Jamal. Uh, I would like to ask uh, Professor Williams a question. Uh
0: huh.
2: Okay. Um, I'm a forty. I'm 46. Um, uh, when I was 25, I worked in a methadone clinic for 10 years. Um, I did my own research on the opium plant because I was working with heroin addicts. And during my research on the opium plant, I read a book, by, uh, called Opium, and Opium. Is used to make heroin and during that research Black Panthers came up, Civil Rights Movement came up, FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover came up. Now what I would like to ask if you are familiar with, during the time of the Civil Rights Movement there was a gap of blacks not abusing heroin or using heroin and then right during the time of the Civil Rights Movement decline all of a sudden heroin users and heroin dealers became very acceptable within the African. Yep. Did we lose you there? I am um, still involved with the um, drug problems in our community, but I'm seeing a lot of the peers, hmm. uh, I say the 20-year-olds who are drinking a lot of that uh, promethazine with codeine in it, which has an opiate-like problem. And uh, I don't think the FBI is doing enough. Uh, crime busting in my community because by me working here i'm seeing the profits that a lot of this illegal activity is causing so i would like to know i'm I'm sorry i moved too fast but i'd like to know have you noticed uh, uh the gap in between once the civil rights movement declined that the acceptance of being a drug dealer in the african community increased and thank you
0: yeah, Jamal, I, I appreciate the, the call and the question. That's a, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Jacoby Williams,
1: I'll, I'll let you have a crack at that. Uh, well, one way of answering that is um, historically watching the ways in which um, how heroin and certain drugs are policed in in these communities. So, um, for example, in the jazz culture from the 30s on, the over uh, and policing of, of addiction, particularly heroin, um, by African-Americans were, were ultimately policed, uh, was forced a lot of folks into uh, mass incarceration, what we now identify as mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, that would even exacerbate itself in the 80s when we introduced crack cocaine. Except now, today, you still have a lot of those opioid addictions, except... With the demographic that tends to be um, overwhelmed by um, these, this particular drug, um, I teach at Indiana University, and rural Indiana is probably the largest demographic of poor whites who are addicted to heroin and opium, and the government response is a medical um, health treatment rather than a criminal criminalization of those kind of campaigns. Yeah. Now, with the the ways in which law enforcement, um, I, I, I can't answer that question whether or not there's a uh, encouragement of um, folks to get involved in those campaigns. We do know that there are efforts by the government to steer people away from organizations who are involved in revolutionary thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can I can have that conversation with you, but I, I don't know much about that. Uh, drug connection that you're asking in terms of those gaps.
0: Yeah, Jamal, uh, again, thanks for listening. Thanks for the call uh, and the questions. Let's go to Leah in Detroit. Leah, welcome to Detroit today.
3: Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so I just called in because the conversation is really, really interesting. I'm a child of two Black Panthers.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, <laughs> I was a part of a nationalistic uh, Faith tradition uh-huh. um, that's based in Detroit, and um time Black people opt to say it's not acceptable for you to hate us, we will defend ourselves and we will be intentionally separate from you. We're viewed as the same uh, type of hostile entity that is actually has actually you know, killed us and done us physical harm over the years.
0: Hmm. Yeah, uh, Le- Leia, I think that's a, that's a super important context for uh, the conversation. I, I, I'm curious to know more about your parents. Uh, can you tell us more about what their involvement was uh, uh, and, and sort of how all that unfolded here so, in Detroit? Yeah.
3: yeah, so my mom was a part of the Detroit chapter. Um, she uh, well I won't a lot of the a lot of this information is sensitive.
4: Right. Um but oh, sure. my
3: dad is very public and he was uh in the Hampton house when it was shot up.
0: Okay. Okay. He
3: was a, a young man and his journey from that point in his life never stabilized. Hmm. I'm thirty five years old and he spent twenty seven of my years in prison.
2: Wow.
3: Um so Look, I know your was father. His age, outside of prison, he, um, he's, he's younger than I.
0: Wow. Wow.
3: And, um, as you know, probably historically they lied and said they were defending themselves.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh,
3: Um, so who, I mean, who should fault, um, any group of black people that just determined to be separate or determined that they won't just lay down and die. Yeah.
0: Leah, I, I, I'm really, I'm really glad you listened to the show. I'm really glad you called in, uh, and I'm really glad uh, you you add uh, you added what you did to the the conversation here. Thanks very much for the call. Uh, th- that's sort of a nice lead-in, I think, to uh, the the discussion that I want to have with you before we uh, before we break, uh, Jacoby, about the current kind of relationship that we see between. Uh, Law enforcement and the African American uh, community, Black Lives Matter, uh, has said a lot about uh, the way that they have been treated by federal law enforcement. Uh, You know what Leah is saying is that this is a continuum, right? That this happens uh, throughout history and that it hasn't stopped. But are there, I guess, the question is, are there ways that it has changed? Is it, it does it look the same as it did? Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the way that uh, that law enforcement sort of pushes back against uh, resistance movements?
1: You know, I, I think, um, well, I know, actually, Lea, um articulates a very valid point. Uh, it's the relationship relationship between race and citizenship and what the Panthers were doing then and Black Lives Matters and various organizations do it now asserting their right as citizens mm-hmm. like our race does not um, neglect our citizenship right? and that's what that's what's taking place here mm-hmm. that was taking place then that's what's taking place now so the panthers for example like black lives matter today uh, were not advocating for separatism they were advocating for the inclusion in the full uh, due process of their rights as citizens in fact if you read the 10 point platform the black panther party Number ten is the Declaration of Independence, right. and what they're arguing is America is not living up to its ideals of its democracy, and as a result, they have a right to dissent. And so, you you fast forward that to today, um, some of the same critical issues that African Americans faced in the '60s are still some of the same critical issues we face today, except now they're exacerbated with other issues like um, HIV AIDS, uh, mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. But some of those same issues, uh, for example, the Panthers began because most of their p- members in the African-American community were being killed um, wantonly and injusti- called justifiable homicides by the police. Here we are 50 years later, (laughs) and this is still one of the same issues that plague our communities, unarmed campaigns. And so the idea of asserting yourself uh, and demanding that the United States respect your rights and enforce your um, your right as a citizen is pretty much what both of these groups are demanding. And I'm speculating um, as a historian, but I think Leah's father may be Blair Anderson who is a very important figure who actually is very much active um, in many of these ca- current campaigns today mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. here in Detroit. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, <clears throat> I'm reminded uh, of, of uh, by this conversation also of the reaction and the narrative uh, that that frames the, the kneeling campaign mm-hmm. that Colin Kaepernick, uh, the the former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, has, has undertaken and that lots of other players uh, in the NFL uh, have have supported the, the, that's like the most mild form of protest i mean I, he, he's just taking a knee during the anthem and yet the response not necessarily from law enforcement but the response from the majority population to what he did and to what he's doing is so so vituperative i mean people get really worked up about the idea that he's trying to draw attention to the to the to the Fact that uh, that life for African Americans looks different than it does for others, uh, and, and I think that helps uh, that helps explain some of what we see historically from law enforcement is that there is this sort of uh, reflexive fear, I guess, uh, and 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 hatred of the
1: idea that you would dare say uh, my rights aren't respected as much as yours are, and, and that's all folks are ask, advocating. Um, the the Kaepernick situation is a part and parcel to this long trend of people outside of our communities, African Americans particularly, who are who get who think they have the right to define the terms how one should protest. Uh, and so folks will say, well, not in not in 1960. This is not what King would have done. This is not how the civil rights movement um, would have responded. They well, wouldn't have blocked traffic. He wouldn't have taken the knee. And people have short memories. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what King was what doing. What he was doing. Direct action, nonviolent civil disobedience, but direct action. These is exactly what these these young folks are are emulating, mm-hmm. these aren't new phenomena, these aren't new trends. And so the whole point of these kinds of protests is to be disruptive, yeah. and that's what folks are doing. To draw attention to the cause, if I disrupt you enough, you have to pay attention. And so, much of the pushback is, well, that's not the right way of doing. Taking a knee is not the right way. what is the right way to protest? Then, right? Um, if it does if you're supposed to protest. Is supposed to make you uncomfortable. I'm supposed to protest so you can be comfortable. <laughs> then you won't protest. You won't pay attention to the issue at hand. And so, what gets taken aback out of this entire? Uh, Kaepernick situation is folks want to focus primarily on the First Amendment, what what the flag means the and anthem. so forth, which is which is all getting away from his initial point is. Look what's happening to us in our communities. Let's pay attention. Let's do something about it. So we always have to come back. This is even in the 60s to today, come back and reassert the narrative and speak and define the terms for ourselves because the mainstream has always tried to define the terms for us. And so our protest is a voice in that regard.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Leah, thanks very much for the call, uh, in the comments, uh, and thanks again for listening. Uh, let's go to Liette Liette Gidlow, who is a professor uh, of history at the at Wayne State University. Uh, Liette, welcome to Detroit today.
4: Yes, good morning. Hey, how are good you? Good to talk to you. Uh-huh. Good. Thank you, Stephen, for bringing on Professor Williams. He his work is so important, and I'm so glad you're bringing it to a bigger audience. Sure. Um, Yes, Jacoby, we met in London at the Twickenham Conference five years ago. Thank you for continuing your important work. You were beginning to hit on a a really, beginning to articulate a really important point earlier, going back as far as the Constitution um, and its effect on the way that um, people of African descent were policed very early on. I wonder if you could give us in brief... Um, The big arc, the big narrative of how um, African Americans have been policed in this country from the founding through Civil War and Reconstruction, post-emancipation, and into uh, the 21st century. What's the big picture? What are the continuities? Hmm. Um, from times of slavery to post-slavery to today.
0: Wow, that's a, a very small question, Lea, and I'm sure we can answer that in two seconds. <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate uh, the fact that you called and asked that because I think it's an important thing. But I'll, I'll
1: ask uh, Jacoby Williams to try to to give us the the thumbnail, I guess, answer to it. Well, one way of um, trying to keep it brief, and thank you for your question. It's always great to connect with you. Um, I may have to. Catch up with you before I leave town. <laughs> uh, there's a, there are three important books uh, recently um, one by Ibram X. Kendi, um, Stamped. Uh, another one is um, White Rage by Carol Anderson. And then a colleague of mine, uh, Jean Theo Harris, uh, just published a book about the misuses, uses, and misuses of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And all three of them have a common thread. And the common thread from the time African-Americans were enslaved all the way up until Black Lives Matter today is we've always been dubbed as criminal because you have laws and policies or, or government institutions in place. That situate African Americans as opposite, or less than, or something other, and then when you resist that, that automatically makes you criminal. Mm-hmm. For example, if the policy is that you are supposed to be enslaved, and that's the understood law, and then you resist that, you are dubbed criminal. Um, and this is kind of what um, um, Kennedy is getting at in his his text on Stamp. And you fast forward that all the way till today. Um, with Gene's um, new release, um, I think it came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in dealing dealing with the ways in which folks um, use and misuse the civil rights movement, we we look back at those trends as if they're romanticized, <laughs> as if well, King would have done things one way and so forth, and even Trump and others um, have. Uh, taking quotes. You had this new Ram commercial that Mm -hmm. came out in the Super Bowl and so Mm -hmm. forth, Um, and folks are not actually listening to what these folks are saying. And in all those particular campaigns, they're arguing the same thing, that we are criminals and we accept our terms of criminals because it's right to protest and advocate against laws that are unjust. So if the laws are unjust, the policies are unjust, um, the the, the particular court decisions are unjust, then it always forces African-Americans to resist, which automatically makes us criminal in all its various ways. So in a very, um, um, I guess I'm, Back doorway of answering your question is the way in which race and citizenship has always been contested by African Americans, and as a result, we've always been dubbed in some kind of criminal element. Now, how that term of criminal has uh, for African Americans been identified has changed over time. I think now the more common thread is these thugs or these un-Americans is sure. what the current te- terminology is today. But that's pretty much the the gist of um, our resistance, and so. Um, even King would say, uh, was what, Jesus not an extremist? Right. If I'm a criminal, right. then I'll be a criminal for God. Yeah. Um, so, uh, folks, <laughs> most of these people um, uh, throughout our, our history here, from the slave ship to today, have always resisted um, the second-class citizenship if we were even granted citizenship. Because in right. slavery, we wouldn't even be citizens. but resisted our treatment and the ways in which our humanity was was neglected and oppressed. And because of that, we have always been dubbed as criminals by those who have the power to define the terms. And as such, we've always resisted. You have to resist that. Right. Okay. Jacoby Williams, Associate
0: Professor of History with a focus on African-American and African diaspora studies at Indiana University. Thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. We'll have to have you back when you come back to visit us here in Michigan. Up next, uh, we're going to talk with Senator Gary Peters about the deal taking place in Washington, the budget deal that doesn't deal with immigration. Stay with us on Detroit Today.